0: Welcome to Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of Food. This is episode 14, and I have Francis Tappen with me. He is the host of Wander Learn, and from what I have been listening to, Francis is really the expert on pragmatism and transformation in his talks about travel and technology it's an exciting time to talk to him because we are both graduates of Amherst College. And Francis, you and I used to play volleyball together. Yes, I was lucky enough, Francis, <laughs> and I think you were really part of why I got to stay in that little hub of people um, playing volleyball, because it was a couple members of the men's volleyball team who used to practice in the off season, and I wasn't part of the women's volleyball team, but I was like a lover of volleyball, and you were really, really inviting and inclusive. In that time frame, and it really made my my experience in the freshman year of college exciting. Yeah, to have friends like that.
1: No, that was awesome. It was great. Good memories.
0: Yeah, and here here you've spent time traveling. Is it 122 countries? Yes. Yeah, it's incredible to me. I would have never guessed that you would have gone off and done that. I knew you were worldly back then, and I guess today I'm really interested. In hearing you talk about what that connection is between food and travel and, you know, how how you have experienced different countries through that lens.
1: Yeah. And I'm also interested in in firing some questions right back at you. So one of the things that I hope both of our listeners, because we're going to air this podcast on your podcast as well as the Wanderlearn podcast, so that people yeah. can get to know you as well. So I hope this Thank is going you. to be a conversation where we both mm-hmm. kind of bombard each other with questions as yes. opposed to just uh, going one way. It's going to be bi-directional.
0: Right. We're, yeah. We're going to volley exactly. <laughs> like we used to, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right? Right. but don't, don't spike me. No right. Spikes.
1: Exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I'll set you up. Yeah. So yeah, so Rafina and I knew each other since college, but we haven't talked in what is it, twenty-five yeah. years or whatever it's been.
0: At least, um, yeah.
1: So it's this is our little reunion, public our public reunion. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've been to a lot of countries, and I guess I here's the thing: I'm a vegan when I yeah. want, when I can be. In other words, I that's I prefer to be vegan, but mm-hmm. when I travel, I put my vegan habits aside. And I believe that so much of travel is the food experience that Mm. it would really be terrible to go to Japan and not have sushi. It would be terrible to go to Argentina and not have an asado, which is a, Mm. a piece of meat. And this is just part of the culinary experience that you should have when you travel internationally. So even though I don't like to eat animals, when I'm in the United States, I will when I travel abroad. And so that's one of the ways I, I, I kind of break that rule, if you will. And and this, sure. the other time I break the rule is when I'm a guest at somebody's house. So let's say if I'm in Ohio, I don't live in Ohio and I'm a guest somewhere and they serve me hamburgers, I'll eat the hamburgers. So those are the two okay. areas where I am not, uh, I'm not a very militant vegan. Let's put it that way. Okay. okay.
0: Well, that's really interesting because it, sometimes for people, it's really difficult to make those adjustments and adaptations. And I think it really speaks to, you know, wanting to learn. Like you've talked about travel being the uni- the best university. And I think, you know, in my own experience, when I've traveled abroad, I've tried to, to have that same like rule for myself to eat whatever's offered in part out of respect for people's traditions And also as an attempt to learn more about how people live, right? Like there's that insight that you get from being part of the rituals of food making and um, food preparation and then sitting at a table and sharing both the conversation
1: and the meal. Right. But Rafina, have you ever eaten something that you didn't want to eat? In other words, did you ever, were you ever in a situation where your hosts offered you something that you're like, I really don't want to eat this. And either you refused or you ate it, but grudgingly.
0: Yes. 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 In my first trip back um, as an adult to the Philippines, my cousins put out on the table the whole fish and they offered me the fish eyeballs. <laughs> and it was it was this moment where I was sort of like, and I was with my brother, who's about a year and a half older. And my brother, Gus, and I, I would say, engaged in what I would call competitive eating when we were younger. So some of it was unhealthy in terms of eating, like a couple Big Macs (laughs) and and trying to out-eat my older brother for no reason other than to be competitive. I was so competitive as a younger child. And with respect to the fish eyeball, my brother was afraid to eat it. So here was like a potential opportunity for a clear win as an adult. We had not traveled together to the Philippines ever. I had gone when I was six years old. And I just wanted to win. (laughs) Uh, I wanted wanted my cousins to know that I could do this and I was unafraid and that I could embrace my Filipino heritage and and do what I had always seen my parents do, right? Like when my parents would sit and eat, they would like deconstruct the head of the fish. Like the head of the fish becomes its own dish in um, certain soup preparations in the Philippines. And it's a delicacy. The eyeball in particular is a delicacy. And I imagine, actually, I can't tell you if this is part of Filipino tradition or if it was just my father's way to coax us into eating some of the more traditional foods. He would tell you that the eating the fish eyeball would give you better sight, um, would make you more intelligent, all of these different things, none of which I think would have any real backing in science. At the same time, my father from a very young age was telling us that fish was brain food. And it was long before I read it in a Martha Stewart article that there was legitimate scientific background for it being brain food. And, and now, you know, there are doctors writing about it and this is your brain on food and, um, and brain food. So, so there are some things that are part of folklore that actually are being proven to be true in science. So anyway, I ate the fish eyeball and it was crunchy. It was crunchy. crunchy. Little, I thought it would be know. more
1: like squishy yeah. and kind of like-
0: It would be, It's there's just such a little part of it that's squishy. The predominant um, textural impact is crunchy because hmm. you because I wasn't expecting the crunch when my teeth bit into it and I got the crunch at the end. I was like, oh, that was not what I expected. Yeah. But But I would say that I felt good after I ate it because I had one um, the respect of my cousins, right? Who who didn't think that I was some, you know, college kid from the US just coming in and dancing and waltzing through it. And then I was willing to be part of my ancestral heritage, um, so it felt good to me. And then, I kind of lorded it over my brother's glass. Exactly. He ate the second eyeball. <laughs> he ate the second oh. eyeball, but it just wasn't the same, okay. right? The second doesn't really matter.
1: <laughs> and you didn't. What about the, the 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 anus of the fish? Did you eat that? No.
0: You know, so that's an interesting thing because when you um, cut into the, the fish, when you're fabricating the fish, you cut from the top part all the way down to the anus. So when you talk about eating it, whenever you're eating part of the belly in that area, it, the anus is just a hole. It's like, so, so there's not any importance to it in the same way that you might think. What would matter more is people eating the guts of, of the fish, I think, which which people do, and I think my father was notorious for eating like almost everything inside the the fish that was edible. So much so that I, I really had to stop him because one day he he just kept eating it and ended up in the hospital for food poisoning <laughs> because I think there were toxins in one of the organs. But yeah, I, I tend to stray away from that. I do like to eat the offal of different kinds of livestock. Um, so, you know, preparations of beef liver and things like that in, in the form of charcuterie and pork liver um, and and chicken livers. So I have been vegan for all of two weeks, but now I'm an omnivore. And I think someday I'll be vegan again, I'm certain, um, because there are so many aspects about it that I appreciated. But for now, I'm still an omnivore.
1: What happened that during your what was how many weeks were you in, a vegan or vegetarian?
0: It was two weeks, mm-hmm. and I um, have in the past cooked for a Taoist priest and his um, meditation and tai chi retreats. in In those particular cases, um, we kind of follow a restrictive diet that is heavily plant based and eliminates all pungent spices. So one has to learn to cook with the essence of herbs and um, extract flavor in different ways.
1: Got it. And did how did your body, the reason you went back to eating animals and, and forgetting about it, what was the, the thing? You just felt the urge to like, I, I really want kind of animal protein or animal meat in general? No,
0: you know, I think it's more that I cook for the whole family and I have a young uh, son and a, a partner who I think need to eat meat right now in, in terms of some of the B vitamins that are available because when I think about um, the nutritional aspects, one has to be very conscientious about how to intake your B12, which is more readily available in meat. So if one is not intentional enough about it, if one's running around too much and just not doing it, you just won't get enough. And so it was much easier for me to eat meat than to try and orchestrate things that a you know six-year-old would eat and ensure that he would get enough, um, or that my partner would get enough.
1: One thing so, that baffles me is I don't understand why B twelve supplements, whenever you take them, they have not a hundred percent of your US, you know, your RDA, your recommended daily allowance, but usually like one thousand or ten thousand yeah. percent of your RDA. Which I really yeah. never, I haven't yeah. researched. It. I'm sure there's an answer as to why that is, but yeah, and the, and the tablets are tiny.
0: I don't know the answer. Yeah, I would imagine that it's because so little of it is truly bioavailable. Maybe. That you would have to kind of, you know, provide a significant overage to be able to get what you actually need. Right. That yeah. would be my guess.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds reasonable. I just always and, and the other thing I think I think flax seeds also has mm. B12 if I'm right or wrong, I'm not sure about that.
0: Yes, you are I'm pretty certain you're right about that. Yeah. Um flax seeds have have become important. We we have like two different bags of them in our
1: oh.
0: cooler, but you should grind them. You should right, grind them. Right, Eating yeah. them whole it, is not so useful.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. They, they need to be pre either ground in your mouth or grounded before you put them in. You, yeah. You've got to chew them like a lot if you're going to chew them. <laughs> yes, yeah. they got, you basically have yeah. to liquefy it in your mouth before you swallow, right. which is what I right. do. I, which to me is... Do you? Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. I always <laughs> have flax seeds with me, and I and I just take it, and I just put a bunch in my mouth, and I just chew it for about I don't know three to five minutes, and then I swallow.
0: Does that make up part of your um, packed like foods when you go on these big hikes? Um, do you it, take your flax seeds with you?
1: Uh, I did take a lot of nuts and seeds and that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if I took specifically flax seeds when I went on my long distance hikes, but yeah, it 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 is an important. As a vegetarian, like you you mentioned, B twelve is is the Achilles heel, and mm-hmm. so you you have to do it. But I know I don't think it's that cumbersome of a thing in order to overcome. In other words, it's not that inconvenient to either eat flax seeds or take a supplement to get that B twelve sure. thing. So I think it's yeah. it's manageable. But yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, mm-hmm. you had a question. I think you had several questions. So maybe we can yes, go through I some did. of those questions and yeah. then. Later on, I wanted to talk about your reaction to the hunting podcast Mm -hmm. and that I had with uh, Brittany Longoria as Mm -hmm. and and as well as an input I heard on KQED forum, where it was a woman who was talking about the food situation in the United States. So those Mm -hmm. are two topics that I want to tackle later on. But first, maybe we can tackle one or two questions uh, that you have.
0: Yeah. Um, one question I wanted to ask you is, are there any foods out there that you've tried in your travels that you would never eat again?
1: Huh? Good question. I'm not really that. And so in Africa, there's a thing called beignet. That's how they say it in French. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but basically it's a flour in a ball the size of a tennis ball, basically. And it's deep fried And that's it. It, They add a little bit of sugar, if anything, almost nothing. And basically, it's a big ball of deep fried flour and really has very little nutritional value. All it does is it serves to fill you up. And yeah, caloric. To me, yeah, and high calories and that kind of stuff. So, uh, I, I shouldn't say I'll never try it again because I'm probably going back to Africa. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> mm-hmm. when you're really hungry on the street, there it is. It's just they're selling it on the street. You take it, but that's probably on. What about you?
0: For me, um, well, I had I had this experience when I was in Russia as a college student, where there was a, a, the equivalent of something like lardo in Italy it's, it's really just pure fat that's been rendered from an animal. And in this case, it was probably pigs um, could have been beef. I'm not too sure. Actually. Um, I everything's hard in translation, right? I spoke enough Russian to get by, but not enough to know the idiosyncrasies of language around fat from livestock. So, right. so but I had, I had it offered to me on multiple occasions because it was such a prized delicacy within the culture that you know it was offered to me in St. Petersburg and then like this mountainside where this couple was tending livestock in the mountains mm. and I didn't I didn't refuse in in the first two instances because I knew it was part of ritual and culture and their appreciation for me as a traveler coming to their country to learn about them and to learn the language more deeply but what I found was I just couldn't palate the warming of the fat in my mouth and the liquefying effect of it. Like there was something about that that made me really think about the animals right. in a way that kind of disrupted my own omnivore tendencies. Mm. And I had to find a way to speak to them in Russian to be able to tell them that I I have a a long family history of heart disease and that I really shouldn't eat (laughs) this particular delicacy and I'd love to just save it for everybody else who can eat it. So by the third time, I learned to say that in Russian and just could politely like decline and and leave it for my other friends. And, And unfortunately, at that time, I was traveling with a good friend of mine now from Amherst, who was a vegetarian at the time, and mm. she, like me, had done the same thing. We would eat what they gave us, right. and she had not. She was a couple years behind in her study of Russian language, and she had not learned to say the sentence sentences. <laughs> and so she was she was eating it, and it was just you know an incredible sacrifice on her part to be immersed in culture. And then you know we we kind of navigated our way to to, to avoiding it at the end. But but I probably wouldn't eat that again. <laughs> if I could avoid it, it's just not, it's not a pleasant feeling for me. And I like prosciutto, but that's like, you know, lean protein with a very thinly sliced piece. These, these pieces of fat were like chunks, chunks, Mm. like, like people would suck on them like candy. And it was, it was a little hard for me.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's one thing that I find fascinating wherever you go on the world, people have a tendency to think their cuisine is the best cuisine in the world. Mm -hmm. And I kind of there's people are so tied to their food. If you ask any immigrant, no matter what country, whether you're in France and you ask immigrants or whether you're in South America and you ask immigrants or if you're in the United States and you ask immigrants, you ask them, what do you miss most about your home country? Food. That is yeah. almost always a response because they feel their food, which they grew up on, is the best in the world, no matter yeah, where it is. Yeah. And And here's my r- objective, scientific rebuttal to that. I think Mm -hmm. there are foods that one can say, quote unquote, objectively are better than other certain cuisines. And and I'll run this by you and you tell me what, if you think I'm I'm, full of it. Yeah, I'm
0: running by me. So
1: the idea is this, if the cuisine is found widespread in various different international locales, then that is something that is universal to the human palate. Give you an example. Mm -hmm. Thailand is a tiny little country, and yet you can find Thai food all over the planet. You can find it in Europe, you can well, in Africa it's a bit hard, but you can find it in South America, you can find it certainly in the United States, and it's it's widespread. It's a tiny country. Meanwhile, Russia is is the biggest country in the world geographically, and yet it's really hard to find Russian food outside of Eastern Europe. You don't see Russian mm-hmm. restaurants in New York. I'm sure there are one or two, but Mm-hmm. In general, it's just not a widespread. So to me, that is the way the world votes for mm-hmm. a cuisine. For example, Chinese food is widespread. So for some reason, Chinese food has hit a chord among people. Now, granted, mm-hmm. it's a big country. That's why I, I cite mm-hmm. Thailand, because it's such a more interesting example, because it's such a small country. Uh, mm-hmm. Mexican food mm-hmm. is pretty, pretty widespread. It's made around the world as well. Uh, you know, hamburgers also for its make its way. Mm -hmm. So that's my metric. If somebody tells me their food is fabulous, like here's another thing, Ethiopian food. Why is Ethiopian Mm -hmm. food so widespread? But you don't see food from Nigeria being that popular. It's around, but it's not nearly as prevalent. When I search for African food in the United States, I'll get like three or four Ethiopian restaurants and maybe one West African restaurant. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's my metric. What do you think? Do you think I'm full of it?
0: Um, A little bit. Okay. Just a little bit. <laughs> Honestly. Um, so it's really interesting when you talk about Russian cuisine, because I've traveled there such a long time ago, and it was really on the cusp of the opening up of the country. And um, when we went there... You know, we had come with this American concept of, well, there should be restaurants available to us to try the best of Russian cuisine. And what we learned as students was there were so few res- restaurants, right, because there were shortages right. of food. We were standing in lines to get bread. You know, that was the context of the opening up of, of Russia. This is in the 1990s. Um, and- yeah, in the 1990s. And so when, you know, I, I brought over a suitcase full of peanut butter and different things, pastas, and, you know, the students ate some, and then we shared them with people who were friends of ours at the time. So that there weren't restaurants because the access to the supply chain wasn't really quite there, it doesn't surprise me. So if you think about that from a business perspective, right, if the country itself doesn't have like this inherent food industry, it's it's... Sort of behind us in its timeline in the development of that industry so the sharing of the food would happen differently like if you go to a a, a person like my father had a good friend who was russian the food is made in the home there's a lot of preservation there's a lot of fermentation and there are a lot of really delicious foods like some of the best chicken soup i had uh, was made by the grandmother of a friend who is russian and man, that babushka can cook, (laughs) like cook better than many chefs. And so where you're going to find the cuisine is in the home. And I think that's also true of, you know, maybe what you see more with Nigerian foods as well. You know, the invitation to eat the foods and the the business aspects of navigating business and starting up a business, you know, just, I think, People have just started it and and made it part of like the family business. And, you know, in some some cultures, it's not the the norm to begin that as like the first form of business. Whereas, you know, I have friends who are Indonesian and their whole family is involved in the restaurant business. And so it just becomes an extension of how people open up their households almost in this new country. And we just have more availability. And you're right, I think, about this. This is where you're not BSing people, where there is a certain level of quick adaptation to things that hit your palate in the way that it hits certain buttons. That's like, that's how we talk about it in the, in the home space, like certain foods hit your buttons. And when there's this balance of the five tastes, sweet, salty, bitter, umami and sour, uh, then you're more apt to recognize how good the quality is because of that balance. And so Thai food inherently with some of the ingredients, right, you think about the lime juices, used, the, the peanut, which gives umami, the, the, the chicken stock that might be used in some of it. And, and then they added sweetness because sometimes there's a little bit of um, sugar used in that sauce. It hits the American palate in such a dynamic way because we are accustomed to sweetness, but that balance will, will resonate with anybody because, because our, our mouths are all the same in, in what we recognize for taste and not quite in terms of flavor, right? Well, because because like if you go to the Coca-Cola museum, for example, and you taste all their drinks, you'll, you'll see that culturally there's a bitter drink in the Coca-Cola shop that is popular in other countries. But when American people go to taste it, their mouths pucker and they're like, that tastes like poison and it's because we're not accustomed to including bitter into the repertoire of what we we eat. And even in our sort of Chinese American cuisine, you see less of some of the more traditional foods that are considered to be almost medicinal, like bitter melon, for example, is one of those vegetables where, you know, it's considered very good for the heart, um, but it has that bitterness. And so often you cook it and you pair it with something that has a little more fat. Like one of my favorite things is to make ground pork with bitter melon because the fat compensates for the bitterness. But yeah, I think I might be going on too long about that. (laughs) I think every cuisine has something to offer us. And if we think that there isn't as much flavor or popularity of the foods. It's because we don't know enough. It's because we haven't educated ourselves. Or we haven't built enough relationships with people who are cooking in the home who are fabulous cooks. and And, you know, at the time, like in Russia, when I traveled, there just wasn't access to the supply chain to to have that kind of opportunity to taste all those foods.
1: But the British you have to be
0: with a family. but
1: the British have access to the supply chain. They've had it much more so than any other culture. And yet, British cuisine is not exported very well anywhere outside of the UK. Yeah. And so... That's interesting. You know, it's it's because it sucks because it's terrible cuisine. That's what it is. And it just, it just doesn't taste that great for most Homo sapiens versus Thai food tastes delicious to most Homo sapiens. That's why it wins. Indian food is awesome. That's why you see Indian foods all mm-hmm. over the place. But you don't yeah. see British food because it sucks. And so... Okay,
0: well... There's there's a lack of balance, right? Like a lot of times when I'm tasting certain British foods, it it lacks hitting the buttons because it maybe lacks acid. The scientific
1: term, Rufina, is it sucks.
0: (laughs) Okay, but I will say this: there are fabulous chefs in London because they've been influenced by cook in other cuisines. Well, they, well, I think fat duck might be one of those that doesn't, but, but, but we can debate that another time. But the thing about, the thing about places like London is they have such an influx of immigration and, exactly. um, you know, different populations. Because their local so, food
1: sucks. <laughs> <laughs> You're just making like, my point, darling.
0: Well, I hate to say that because I think there's something there. I think, I think every cuisine has its highlights. I, I think I think there's a utilitarianism around common foods in in Britain that that don't excite me but when you when you start talking about like the seafood available in certain places you know then I think simplicity is greatness and flavor is all about the the things that you know create the natural environment to give you the best product the best fish or whatever so so I would say You still haven't tried everything. And then I would also say that I I went there for, I think, nearly a month when I was in high school. And it was at this time where I was at Homerton College, which is part of Cambridge University. And we were a bunch of high school students kind of eating cafeteria style in the morning, but they would put out this spread. And they had, I think they had peanut butter out, but they didn't have jelly out. Yeah. And I remember asking, I know, (laughs) sacrilege for an American, right? Like here we were having these scones and they were expecting us to eat peanut. But I'm like, this is like the dry, like it's too sticky. Like how can they, how can they do this? So I remember asking the the woman who was working uh, the the line and I said, is there any way you could find some of that great marmalade or whatever and also put it out in the morning um, instead of with the tea time? because, you know, in America, we like to eat peanut butter and jelly together. It's like quintessential. And she was just shocked and and almost slightly offended. Like, how dare you ask me to switch up what we're offering you? Like the nerve of this girl. And then, like, we were all so happy to have that, like, addition to our breakfast. And I think, you know, it was one of those things where, like, some of the baked goods have, like, a fine quality to them, like the scones and things like that. So I, there's always something I can find to appreciate in every cuisine. And, and you're right, like, maybe it's only part of the spectrum by comparison to, like, the variety and, the like, all the, the spot-on things that you find in some other cuisines. But I, I imagine that as as the world informs the country and the immigrants help the population to learn more we're gonna see better food, <laughs> you know. So, so okay, maybe I'm gonna give you that one a little. <laughs> I'm gonna give
1: that to you. I just think it's it, you're, you're, you're skirting a very politically correct line that everybody is like nice and it's good food, and we just got to learn. But I, anyway, we'll we'll uh, we'll de- <laughs> we'll debate that later. But what you said remind me also of what my wife Rejoice said. She's from Cameroon, and when we were traveling through Africa one time, she was making me a you know she put bread and put peanut butter on it and then just gave it to me. And I looked yeah. at her and I said, don't ever give me bread and peanut butter without jelly. <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> and she she's like, she looked at me like I was a demon. Like, or she's just like, Wait. what the fuck? What is this guy yeah. talking about? And she was just right. like, she thought it was so strange. And here, fast forward of about four years later, she's in the U.S. Navy. And I talked mm-hmm. to her like what she eats at the cafeteria. And she's like, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> She's she's like, (laughs) I get it now, I get it now. (laughs) It really needs the jelly. Yeah, it
0: does (laughs) need the jelly. Well, but until you do it, you don't know that you're missing out on like a better experience, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. Um, And that's exactly what the British are missing out, a better experience Mm -hmm. in the dining, in the kitchen. (laughs) I'll I'll quit poking this one at you at this one. But okay, so, (laughs) but here's the other question I had, speaking about the cafeteria in the U.S. Navy. I have this other hypothesis, and tell me if I'm full of shit about this one too. Okay. Um, which is, I think there's a natural human tendency, especially amongst Americans, but I'm, I'm, it's probably a global phenomenon, that when food is served in a cafeteria style situation or any kind of like a buffet kind of thing, but especially cafeteria style, mm. that no matter what is there, people are going to poo-poo it and criticize it on average, mm. and just denigrate it, and say it's tasteless, it's terrible, etc. And conversely, uh, you go to a a restaurant that charges you over $100 a plate, almost universal thumbs up. And my hypothesis, which again, you're probably going to refute, but I'm going to throw it out there, which is if you took some cafeteria food, not all cafeteria food, but some of it, and you put it in a fine dining restaurant, and you went in there very hungry, You'd probably, I mean, you you might not think it's fabulous, but certainly you wouldn't complain about it nearly as much if there was like a candlelit dinner and you were served that same cafeteria food. So I guess it goes back to like the ambiance, the setting and all that stuff Mm. that somehow infects our mind and our judgment, even though most people would hear that and deny it say, no, absolutely not. I can just tell you objectively, this cafeteria food is terrible. But I have a Mm. feeling that, and same thing, I mean, you and I went to Amherst College. I thought the yeah. cafeteria food was pretty decent. I went to Harvard Business School. At Harvard Business School, they spend a lot of money on the cafeteria. I think the food there is delicious, but no, the people there would complain about it. What do you think?
0: Um, well, I, I think it depends who's in the kitchen. It always depends on who's in the kitchen. And, and so, you know, when I went to culinary school at New England Culinary Institute, one of our classes was actually AM cafeteria. And another one was PM Cafeteria. And we produced high quality food um, that, you know, oftentimes did local sourcing of at least poultry um, from Misty Knoll Farms. And the quality we put out was high quality, like the kind that you would find in a restaurant because we were training to be in restaurants. Mm. And people would come from around the region to eat with us in our cafeteria because with the level of volume production that we had we could offer a price point that was reasonable and people get this high quality food.
1: Hold on, this was a a culinary institute, cafeteria? Yeah. But see, that kind of, I mean, that's that's kind of the, that's, I guess, the closest I can get to, like taking cafeteria food and then putting a nice label on it. And so all of a sudden, that's what I mean, is that you're carrying that. I'm just wondering as if you were making that same food and you're doing it, in a university dorm, uh, university uh-huh. of some sort, and the exact same food served there. That my guess is that a lot more people criticize, and people wouldn't drive out of their way to get there just because they associate it like it's university cafeteria food. It's got to suck.
0: Yeah, I think people might have those preconceived biases about it, but I think your your mouth doesn't lie to you. So that like you know, you, if you actually ate it, right, we, we do eat with our eyes first. That's what we always say um, when we're preparing food. So, you know, the mood definitely matters. The way it's plated matters. There's like a, there's somebody who did this Instagram set or maybe Facebook photos of plate ups using ketchup and mustard in different ways, but using like the styling of high-end restaurants. And it was just, it was like an interesting commentary on the way that we've sort of kind of perverted our expectations around things. Simple things can be really exciting. And, and most of the time it's a matter of technique. And when people have become accustomed to these cafeteria settings that don't offer good food, it's because the training isn't there, right? There's, a, there's a, not enough people who are trained going into the cafeteria setting. And so that means that so much of it is just commodity foods out of a can. Which will never be the best unless you're you're doing something different, um, sourcing it differently. I mean, some of it can be like you know harvested at the best time of year, but it's only ever going to be canned food as opposed to fresh. So one of the things I, I like that I'm seeing is you know these sort of public schools in in rural areas like where I where I am, they're taking the time to make from scratch food, and they're using local ingredients. And if you if you get that, if you get the access to local ingredients, like the soil here is so mineral rich, you almost can't mess it up, Francis. Mm. Like you can't, you know. Like you just let the ingredient speak for itself. You'd have to work hard to destroy it almost in the in the cooking process. And then there are some people who really care, who are in in the cooking world here and in the kitchens, and they've recognized that as a priority. It's important to feed our children healthy, good, nutritious food that tastes good so that they're building a relationship with food that will continue through their lifetime where they have the expectation of quality. Like, I think everyone should expect quality, whether you're, you know, in a grade school, in a high school, or in a college. I'd like to see more people demanding that and and more essential workers sort of you know, taking ownership of that and, and getting paid for it too, for that knowledge base that that would make a lot of things different in terms of quality. But yeah, I do think you're right. I think you could fool people into raving about a, a food made in a cafeteria that could be sold for $2 a plate, but just present it in a way and, and then charge a hundred something for it. Mm. I, I think artistry can kind of help make those things happen right. on the plate. Sure. Right. And One the other,
1: the other belief I, I, I believe in is an Estonian saying, which is an empty stomach is the best chef. Mm. And, empty stomach
0: and, is a bad, Well, not for me. I get hangry. <laughs> I get hangry. I don't know if you had that no, experience. No, but,
1: but, but, but the, the point of that saying, Rufina, is that when you're hungry, food mm-hmm. tastes delicious, Always. Almost universally. Let's,
0: almost always. Yeah. Right. Almost and always. So, uh, that's true. So I, w- I always
1: think that like, you know, somebody says, hey, let's go to this expensive restaurant. I'm like, how about we wait an extra hour or two and then go to a much cheaper one? And that food will be a lot mm. better tasting. <laughs> oh, interesting.
0: That's such a unique
1: thing to, so. to be thinking about. <laughs> yeah, It's just a random I'm, thought.
0: Yeah. So, so you know, that's, that, yeah. I, I will say you're right about that. Always like that that level of waiting, you know, if you, if you go, I have a thing with hunger where if you go past a certain point, you, you're you not hungry anymore. So if you get to that point, I think it's all the same. But if you're actually in that place of hunger, yeah, the meal could be anything. For me, I think what matters more is almost the intention of who's cooking. Like you can tell the difference between exactly the same foods prepared by two different people and I think you can, whether it's chi or love that infuses the food, you can taste and see the difference. They could have the same thing. like I, I um, served as a culinary student as a judge for a King Arthur Flower cake recipe baking contest. And it was just really interesting to see like how the same recipe could be taken by, I don't know, maybe there were twenty entries. And produce a very different cake in each instance. And obviously, there are so many factors in terms of heat temperature, the kind of equipment, the way they mixed. But at the end of the day, I also know it's like the intention and the the, the focus of the, the person who's doing that. How do you know, though? Um, and how do I know? Well, I wouldn't have known there, right? I could make certain assumptions based on how it was presented. Like you know, certain things that come out looking sloppy or uneven, like th- that somebody submitted it anyway, instead of saying, oh, you know, it's not quite up to par. Let me sit out this one. Those things you can see. And then you can taste certain things where you're like, oh, this person was not focused. There's too much baking soda. And it creates a certain, you know, metallic taste in the mouth or something. So there's certain things you can know.
1: Rufina, I want to throw another crazy idea off of, off of you, bounce it off of you and see what you say. Okay. I have this another Crazy idea, which is, I think that using salt in your food is cheating.
0: Ah, so salt as an ingredient enhances the the natural flavor of whatever it is that you're eating.
1: Hence, so, cheating.
0: I, I think it depends on how you're defining cheating. Why is that cheating to enhance something that's natural to you know the ingredient? You can have similar effects just using lemon juice. Um, in terms of enhancing this, the, that certain flavor, I don't think it's cheating because one, you know, certain salts provide minerals that our body needs, and that's important, you know, for proper function.
1: But I think and so. That I don't. So much don't of our like food in the United States, it's it's really hard not to get salt. You know, yeah, like, So I mean, it's 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 infected so many different foods. So mm-hmm. w- nobody in America has ever died of like a short salt shortage, and never will. True. Um, and so true. that's worrying about like I got to add salt because I know it's good for me, or if I sweat it yeah. out that kind of stuff. It's really not an issue. So no, to it's me, it's mean. it's more of the challenge of a chef. I would say is how can you enhance the food without using salt, and that to me is a sign of a chef that knows what the hell they're doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you could easily do it. Cause with the other one is, is like
1: taking a shortcut. I feel like using salt is like a shortcut. Like, you know, nobody's looking mm. Oh, instant. Like, mm.
0: you know, no, I think, I think salt, you know, it's, it's part of like, if I, I, I really view um, cooking as culinary artistry. Um, and so it's just like picking up a different brush to create a different kind of picture and so salt, depending on your audience, like if you're cooking for older people who can't have a lot of salt, then I'm going to sub out the salt for some lemon juice potentially. But if I'm if I'm just cooking, you know, just for the average population, there's like a range of what level of salt will kind of create that impact of highlighting the umami, um, which is sort of that savory sweetness combined in one experience. Hold on yeah.
1: one second. I, I thought Lemon juice would be a substitute for something like vinegar and not for salt.
0: It can be a substitute for vinegar. So like I I will make a, a salad dressing using lemon juice and garlic and olive oil. And when you are doing liquid preparations like certain kinds of soup, it's sort of a a tricking of the palate to not miss the absence of the right range of salt to hit the sweet spot in the body for the brain recognizing that, oh, this is savory and, you know, attractive to my palate. So it, it's not like a one-for-one a one kind of substitution. It's more about how to change the balance of the profile of the food in front of you so that you can enjoy it. But I, I did that for a long time with, I went through a low-sodium period for no reason. And, and it's healthier for you. You know, it doesn't tax the kidneys as much. Salt and sugar really behave in the body the same way in terms of our kidneys as a filtration system. Right. So the less you use, the better off you are. You know, lemon juice has vitamin C, great for the Krebs cycle in the cells. You know, so there are all kinds of reasons to, to opt for that. But I don't think it's a cheat. I, I think what I care about is whether a chef is over-salting or under-salting. Because when you, when you take the ingredient of salt and you misuse it or miss the mark on using it, that feels, in, in our household, it feels sort of offensive. <laughs> you know, you go out to a restaurant and you, um, you pay for it and you be like, I, I put myself in your hands to show me what you recognize is the beauty of this food. And when you haven't used the appropriate amount of salt and you understate the flavor of the food by doing so, you create dullness in the food and it doesn't have the brightness it's supposed to have.
1: But what's wrong with a the salt shaker at the table? What's wrong? Is it oh. too late?
0: In some cases, yes, because like when you see, okay, so this is this is about meat eating again, Francis. Oh my <laughs> like god! You salt on the steak <laughs> before it hits the grill or hits a griddle, it sears it in, and you have on the surface. A reaction, a Maillard reaction, that caramelizes the sugars at the surface, at the proteins, and when the salt is in, embedded, right, it's like embedding it there on the surface. It it impacts your taste buds differently than after it's been fully cooked and you're adding it afterwards. You almost can't repair that kind of situation, particularly with proteins. It just won't be the with same. Just proteins? like if you've ever tried animal, protein, but even French fries. Like if you were to make your own French fries, right. And you take it out of the hot oil and you start to toss it in a bowl, you want to toss that in salt immediately after it comes out of the fryer because it's searing hot and it will stick with that oil that's just come out of that searing hot fire. But you, if you did it after it cools down just a little bit, that salt isn't going to stick anymore. And so then you're going to get the dullness of potatoes. It, it, it's really, you can't, I don't think for me personally, I'm like a potato fiend, it's not the same experience having an unsalted potato. This is not the same.
1: Okay. So what the, do you think about that? Well, I agree with you. I mean, definitely things with salt always taste better almost always, but I you know, yes, you can oversalt some things, but I just think that I aim for undersalting things. I mean, in the rare moments that I actually cook just because I always feel like if somebody wants to add something more, they can always add something more. They can add, always add salt. And you can't take salt away if you've over if if to their taste you've oversalted it. So, but I understand the concept which just said which is adding it after the fact is not the same as doing it during the process. I, I think yeah. that there's certain situations where you got to do it during the process. But I just was yeah. curious what your your answer is. That you've got to some more questions. Let's go through them.
0: Yeah, let's go through some more of those questions. So. I wanted to know a little bit more about your hiking because I recently subscribed to your podcast because I only knew about it recently and I'm binging on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like I'm imagining all these hikes that you've been doing and, and my family has started hiking, but in no way has tried any of these larger hikes that you've been doing. And I have struggled at times to sort of, figure out how to find the right snacks on these kinds of hikes for the range of us. You know, I have a young son and the two of us are are chefs. So looking for the palatable snack that's lightweight, Even drinks that might help with hydration for a child who doesn't like to drink very often. Those things would be really helpful to to know about. In the Pacific Northwest, there's so many people who hike on a regular basis. I think it would be great for listeners to hear. In my own experience, I'll just say this. When I did the Boston to New York AIDS ride, every 15 miles, we stopped and we had half a banana and we had a, a cliff bar and uh, i loved cliff bars cuz they they took me on many long rides but after i did the aids ride i did not want to eat another cliff bar and it took me like 5 years to get back to eating them and i love cliff bar as an organization um, but but it was definitely a little rough going for me and so what what are your go-to snack foods or things that sustain you with the right amount of calories and protein and all that
1: it's a tough question because for me i I'm different than you, Rufina. I mean, you take food very, very seriously and you appreciate it at a level that I don't get close to. I admit it. I see, especially when I'm hiking, food as a utilitarian thing. And I also don't have a child who may say, I don't want to eat that because I, so I'm not yeah. walking with them. And I realize that children can be very picky and yet you still mm. need to feed them one way or another. And so you're facing challenges on two fronts that I don't face. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have a, I think probably a pickier palate than me versus I just look at it as utilitarian. I just need calories to keep walking. And then, and then two, I don't have a child that I'm trying to nourish Mm -hmm. as well. So those are two Mm -hmm. different challenges. I will say this, that and the other thing that's kind of shocking, so I, I walked across America four different times, one through the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and then I did a yo-yo, which is up and down round trip on the Continental Divide Trail. And the Continental Divide Trail was interesting from a culinary perspective because I didn't even bring a pot to boil water. In fact, oh I n- had no cooked food for seven oh my gosh. months.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. Explain that to me. Explain how you... Did that?
1: Yeah. So what I did is I just brought energy bars. I brought anything that didn't need to be cooked. So that's what I ate. Now, when I went to resupply into towns, which happened about roughly every four or five days, then in the town, I would eat a warm meal. And, but Mm -hmm. then that would just be one meal for once in four or five days. And then I went back on the trail. What I would eat would be dehydrated soy milk, and then i would have okay. breakfast like cereal in the morning i could also soak couscous overnight so if you just mm. in cold water so if you just put couscous mm-hmm. in cold water it's edible mm-hmm. after i don't know mm-hmm. an hour worth of time wow. and and the other thing i ate i can't remember uh, sometimes textured vegetable protein also if you just soak okay, it sure. In water, uh-huh. it doesn't need to be boiled or heated because I didn't have a stove. I had no way to heat water. So I, right. I, everything had to be soaked if I if I did that way. And then of course, energy bars, the key is variety. Don't just binge on cliff bars. You know, have mm-hmm. like five, six, seven different types of energy bars out there. So you have a variety. Uh and then I had a lot of different trail mixes and nuts and seeds okay. and that kind of stuff. That was also high dense energy. That's a wonderful okay. uh, source of energy. They call it trail uh-huh. mix for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's good for the trail. Mm-hmm. And what, oh, the other thing is when I went into town to resupply every four or five days, I would buy fresh fruits and vegetables. And I did get, of course, dry, dehydrated uh, fruits as well to get some of the mm-hmm. vitamins. And the fresh fruits and stuff like that, I would eat them within the first couple of days of hiking so i would bring apples oranges uh kiwi bananas and i would have peanut butter and jelly hey there's your favorite again yes. with with bread and i would also eat while i walked a lot of times uh, so it was a very different experience cuz i had to put in about 35 miles every day and so to wow. do that That's you don't so much mm, you don't want to walk fast. You want to just walk at a constant pace, like a leisurely pace, but you want to do it a lot. And so there's roughly in 12 hours in a day, if you're walking, you know, every day about four miles an hour, then you can do it. You know, it's, or three miles an Mm -hmm. hour, four miles an hour, that kind of stuff. You can get a lot of miles in. So, yeah, yeah, I would walk 12 to 15 hours a day and I would just eat. I would even brush. I would floss while I was walking, looked at maps while I was flossed and while I was walking. Everything I did while I was walking It was a long trek. So it was
0: That's good. amazing.
1: Okay, yeah,
0: can but, picture it better now with that explanation.
1: Oh, sorry, one more thing. When I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, on the Continental Divide Trail, sorry. Pacific Crest Trail and the Appalachian Trail where I did have a stove and I actually hiked with a woman, my girlfriend at the time. That's when I did have a stove. And what we would do is we would eat our heaviest meal, usually at two or three in the afternoon when it was the hottest time of day. And so that's when you kind of take a break in the hottest time of the day, cook around 2 p.m. Uh or so. And then that also has the advantage of you have plenty of time to digest it because I really don't believe mm. in eating a lo- heavy meal right before bedtime. It's I think yeah terrible idea. So yeah. there you
0: go. That makes sense. And oh, you know, just a digression, but a point of interest for me. When you were cooking on the Appalachian Trail, did you pull out your umbrellas? To shield you while
1: you were cooking? Uh, Yeah. Especially, I mean, if it's raining, obviously, or if if, if it was sunny. Well, actually the Appalachian Trail is also kind of nice because they have shelters roughly every 10 miles or so. Oh, I didn't know that. There's these little, it's it's, it's three walls and a roof. And so it's not completely enclosed, but when it's raining or if it's very sunny, you can actually go and cook in the shelter or next to the shelter anyway. So, but yeah, an umbrella is super useful whenever you're hiking and it's a completely underestimated Tool.
0: Yeah, I love that. I, it just made me want to go out and find one of those umbrellas that you mentioned to yeah. the exit. What is it? Excel?
1: Ex- oh, well, ex officio is the Celia. rain jacket, but um, the, the one that it's gossamer gear that makes the umbrella that's really lightweight okay. And, and, okay. and has a reflective surface on it.
0: Okay. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize there was a reflective surface on yeah, it it's when of, I was listening. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me because my first experience of going to the Philippines when I was five years old, my aunt. Bought me a pa- parasol, and you had mentioned the word parasol right. in the, in the podcast, and it was my first time thinking these people are using an umbrella the wrong way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like in my head as a, <laughs> a five year old, and then I realized how useful it was yes. um, to block the sun.
1: Yep,
0: and um, you know it really changed my impression and and the way that they make the parasols, it's it's for your pleasure too because they usually have nice prints on them and. Mm-hmm you know, it's, I don't think we value the umbrella quite as much. And I was really grateful to hear you talking through the reasons to use one. And I am going to bring it because one of the last times we were out, it it wasn't hiking, but we were walking along some trails along the Dutchess Spit and um, went out on the spit. And I had not adequately covered my son in sunblock. So it was a total parenting fail. And when we got home, his, his ear looked like bacon. And so that's like our, our code word, you know, our code phrase, you, you, you know, when he doesn't want to put on the sunblock, we don't want your ear to look like bacon. (laughs) So, but maybe, maybe a reflective umbrella would be a really nice thing that he would enjoy because he is not a hat wearer. Right. And I, I like that idea. Yeah.
1: What's your next question?
0: How, how much of your pack is dedicated to food space, like percentage wise?
1: Okay. So that's that's a good question. So food is probably the heaviest item as far as volume is concerned because, and and you want to make it especially so like you don't want to take, I don't know, rice crackers or something that takes up a lot of volume in your pack, but offers very Mm -hmm. few calories. That's again, going back to nuts and trail mix, it's dense and you want dense amount of healthy calories in your Mm -hmm. food. And so as a percentage of your pack, it might only take up about at maximum 25% of your backpack because what really takes up a lot of space is your sleeping bag to some extent, the tarp, and then you have some other stuff, but maybe about 25%. And of course, as you hike through the days, that percentage goes down to nearly zero because by the, ideally if you planned (laughs) it right, you should be coming with an empty backpack to the next town, to the next resupply point. But yeah, about 25%. I would say, And as far as weight, though, it's different. Uh, As far Mm -hmm. as the percentage of the weight, it can be up to 50% or more of the weight. Oh, because again, it's dense. Right.
0: And Mm -hmm. so my
1: backpack without food and water weighed about six pounds or about three kilograms, which is very little. And I definitely carried more than six pounds of food. So it was probably about 75% of my weight was food, maybe 80% of the pack weight was food. A lot. And of wow. course, water, water is super heavy as well. And when you're walking across, I walked over 2000 kilometers worth of deserts. And that's, those are, you know, you got to carry oh a gosh. lot of water, sometimes six, eight liters of water. One time okay. when I was in Libya, I was walked, walking to the tallest mountain of Libya. My, uh, I was walking uh, with Rejoice, my wife and her and my brother-in-law. And the three of us, we carried about 38 liters of water between the three of us. It was mm-hmm. a lot of water because we weren't going to have water for like two days nonstop of walking. <laughs> yeah. So, water so
0: you know, that's an interesting thing to me because I, I think I have certain fears around running out of water uh, or running out of food. I'm sure that comes from my parents um, and their sort of relationship as immigrants, like my, my father in particular. You
1: did You did not pass that fear down to your son, my dear
0: because no. he's um, he's not
1: afraid of, of running out of water because he doesn't drink enough water
0: i know i know, <laughs> I, know. I have been a- inadequate in expressing those types of things but um but but i would say that like to embark on a journey where you would know that there could potentially be some scarcity of those things i mean that's probably doesn't even does that even occur to you when you're you know, embarking or like that's such a passe thing because you've already planned so well. Like I, I would worry that I didn't plan well enough to, yeah. to bring the right amount of things.
1: When I was in Chad climbing the tallest mountain of the Sahara Desert, it's called Emikusi. It's about 3,800 meters or about, or so, I believe. There, I did not plan well. I had mm-hmm. intelligence from the locals telling me that there was probably some water source up near the summit of the mountain, like mm-hmm. on the way up effectively, maybe about 80% of the way there or 70% of the way to the summit. And there wasn't. And we searched and searched and we didn't find it. And oh. and to make matters worse is my wife and my brother-in-law and me, the three of us got totally separated. It's a long story. I'm not gonna oh bore gosh. you the details, right? But And they <laughs> spent overnight, in the very cold, because the Sahara Desert gets quite cold at night, especially at three thousand mm. meters, and they were alone yeah. without a sleeping bag, and oh they gosh. nearly died, both of them, and that was a very <sighs> precarious situation. And we were dehydrated, and none of us had oh water. Gosh. We were co- so we had oh gone gosh. up so high up in the mountain. And we could have easily, not easily, but we could have made it. We've been quite thirsty. Had we just all stuck together and gone up to the top of the mountain, Mm. the summit, turned around and come all the way back. We would have been thirsty, Mm. but we could have made it. And the problem was, is that we all got, we all went in three different directions and Mm. got separated. And we wasted a lot of energy and a Mm. lot of hydration walking up and down the mountain and getting lost and looking for each other and all that kind of stuff. So by the time we actually reunited, we Mm. were... Utterly, utterly dehydrated. And that was, you know, a very scary moment for us. So yeah. that was the closest I got to uh, being in a tough situation there where water was an uh-huh. issue. And, and other times things turned out well. For example, on the Pacific Crest Trail, I kind of, there's a part of the Pacific Crest Trail where they leave water caches, where they leave, mm. uh, where these trail angels, we call them trail angels. These people mm. who come by and drop like, I don't know, 50 gallons of water just in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you can't really depend on it, but I decided to depend right. on it and I got there and okay. there they were. <laughs> oh, that's but, nice. But, that's but nice. had they not been there, <laughs> yes. and I'm sure that happens to plenty of Pacific Crest Trail hikers, they get yeah. there and they're expecting, and but that can be also for a stream, you might expect a spring to be mm. active but you come there too late in the season or it wasn't a really wet mm-hmm. winter. And so the spring is not running full and you get there and you're, mm-hmm. you can be screwed. And it's always that balance. And so most people, yeah. what they do is that they take more water than they think and that's it. Okay. But other types, other and that's probably what you would do since you've got a phobia yeah. of this, but- right. <laughs> But it's
0: not quite a phobia yet. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done anything enough to
1: know. <laughs> no, but it would a be a phobia. Like if you did set yeah, up, you'd yeah. be overly yeah, cautious, would be worried. my guess. And yeah. you, you would over plan and take too much water, even though it's heavy. Yeah, You would just say, I'd rather be safe than sorry.
0: Yeah. I, I can recall traveling around Italy two different times. One where I was really just going post culinary school and... I did not have the mindset that that you have about packing light. So I overpacked in the first place and I was carrying I probably would say about 50 to 60 pounds of stuff in my backpack. And then I found myself accumulating things, one of which was like my all-time favorite Italian hand-cranked pasta maker that I bought over there, right, and negotiated. And by the time I I left Italy, I had probably close to 75, 80 pounds of stuff on my back. We were lucky enough to find lockers to place them when we went on larger hikes because we hiked Cinque Terre. But at that time the conversations around hydration were were not really they weren't weren't so mainstream right. and we were walking around Cinque Terre without even a bottle of water <laughs> it was like this the dumbest thing I was like how could we have not known that like, we didn't really know like what is it to hike Cinque Terre and and here we were going and we really had to rely on the people right. who were living there recognizing we were just two like ridiculous young yeah. women hiking this trail, not recognizing what we'd gotten ourselves into with all these steps going up right, Terry, right, right. Um, and and it was just surprising to me that, that I would f- find myself in that position of not planning enough and relying on, on local people to kind of make sure we didn't dehydrate fully. Right. So those, those are some things. I want, to, I,
1: I want to switch the conversation a little bit to talk about sure. the co- more controversial topic, which is hunting. So yeah. for those who haven't heard my podcast, there's a podcast right
0: I That was Francis Tappan, author of Hike Your Own Hike and podcast host of Wander Learn. Special guest on Food Love, The Space Between Terroir and the Tao of Food. Francis is a good friend from college and after two decades of not having spoken to him, I came to learn that he had traveled over 120 countries around the globe. He has exceptional experience in travel and it's been wonderful to talk to him about the intersections between food and travel please listen in to part two of this interview in which we talk about certain controversial topics in food please share and subscribe to food love the space between terroir and the dao food